0: And I started
1: to do some thinking. On the freeway and I'm having a really, really good time.
0: Flat black glasses, looking big, cruising.
2: Saturday daylight.
1: I'm a freeway I'm a Can I say? I am Teddy an right. adolescent,
3: and I will cut the shit. Henry, yeah. Charlie here. Yeah, I have a report here. Yeah. Chief Nurse Major O'Houlihan She makes some accusations Henry, I I find pretty hard to believe Uh, the dude minds, man
4: Captain Curls, up in the head Mutiny Radio Festival, ahoy Ah, very good Ah,
5: very good legless Joe I'm surprised you can see from the Crow's Nest with no legs It's to get ready crew the festival is upon us scurvy steve how many comics over a hundred comics you're looking good scurvy steve glad the scurvy hasn't taken you aye aye captain you no liver mary how many venues we've got nine venues sir and you boy what's your name very good
4: and finally eleven fingers sally what about the tickets you can find all of your tickets on Eventbrite, sir. Check out www.mutinyradio.fm. Arr. What is that? I don't know what a website is. I'm a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> but but f-
5: quick to the festival, all sails ahead. Arr. Arr. Pirate noises. Ambiance.
4: Are you tired?
3: different facts of life that we must know about and when you think about the various nations of the earth the various religions of the earth the various nationalities the various people all over the world we have been able to make anything that we want to make and do anything we want to do have created miracles but it don't make sense when we can't make peace you know you made everything else wise men great men from every nation in the world all the countries in the world have all kinds of conventions and festivals, spend all the money, suppose you had to spend half as much money on trying to make peace as you have in making war, we wouldn't have to worry about nothing, but it don't make sense, it don't make sense, It don't make sense when you can't make peace. and change. When you came
6: Blues. So, I'd like to bring forward to you a young lady. Well, i magnificent. Good
7: night. And now, I, I would like to First, I
4: would
1: like
4: you to
8: Willie Dixon. Good night, <laughs> I'll
1: see you and in And on the drums,
8: dream. Jump Jackson. That's Saturday. Me and my
6: wife settled down,
5: now me and my wife
6: are party.
5: I'm gonna take another stroll downtown, let me hear it.
9: an out,
3: outlay out, out.
10: Daddy. You do not do, you do not do any more black shoe in which I have lived like a foot for thirty years, poor and white, barely daring to breathe or ha Daddy, I have had to kill you. You died before I had time, marble heavy, a bag full of God, ghastly statue with one gray toe big as a Frisco seal and ahead in the freakish Atlantic, where it pours bean green over blue in the waters off beautiful Noset, I used to pray to recover you, ach, do, in the German tongue in the Polish town, scraped flat by the roller of wars, wars, wars. But the name of the town is common. My Polack friend says there are a dozen or two. So I never could tell where you put your foot, your root. I never could talk to you. The tongue stuck in my jaw. It stuck in a barbed wire snare. ich 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 I could hardly speak. I thought every German was you. And the language obscene, an engine, an engine, chuffing me off like a Jew. A Jew to Dachau, Auschwitz, Belsen. I began to talk like a Jew. I think I may well be a Jew. The snows of the Tyrol, the clear beer of Vienna, are not very pure or true. With my gypsy ancestress and my weird luck, and my Tarok pack and my Tarok pack, I may be a bit of a Jew. I have always been scared of you, with your Luftwaffe, your gobbledygoo and your neat moustache, and your Aryan eye, a bright blue. Panzerman, man. oh you, not God, but a swastika, so black no sky could squeak through. Every woman adores a fascist, the boot in the face, the brute, brute heart of a brute like you. You stand at the blackboard, Daddy, and the picture I have of you, a cleft in your chin instead of your foot, but no less a devil for that, no, not any less the black man who bit my pretty red heart in two. I was ten when they buried you. At twenty, I tried to die and get back, back, back to you. I thought even the bones would do, but they pulled me out of the sack, and they stuck me together with glue, and then I knew what to do. I made a model of you, a man in black with a mine Kampf look, and a love of the rack and the screw. And I said, I do, I do. So, Daddy, I'm finally through. The black telephone's off at the root. The voices just can't worm through. If I've killed one man, I've killed two. The vampire who said he was you and drank my blood for a year. Seven years, if you want to know. Daddy, you can lie back now. There's a stake in your fat black heart and the villagers never liked you. They're dancing and stamping on you. They always knew it was you. Daddy, daddy, you bastard, I'm through.
11: And on that note, I want to wish you a good morning. This is the bee and I'm talking to you. From Mutiny Radio. Saturday morning 10 to 12, labor and love. Go by for and about working people and their movements. Every week we come to you with our admonition. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked on it. Earned a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the negotiating table where you work, on the, menu, the boss is organized, are you? And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time
10: aerial stasis in darkness then the substanceless blue
11: sylvia plath beginning again even before we can review what we had on that set so we started out with uh, one of the most eloquent eloquent songs about peace that i've ever heard by willie dixon I can't make second one we had was Irene Goodnight by The Weavers, number one song in 1949, 50. Singers were identified as quote unquote communists, lost all their uh, contracts, very big hit. Overnight it just disappeared. Irene Good Night is one of their songs. song by Leadbelly. Really. And of course, Irene is the Greek word for peace. So if you know any Greek, you know that song is about peace as well. And finally, we had Sylvia Plath, her ultimate. The male principle fascist laughing over the fascist death. What's happening now in What's happening at this moment in Gaza? Okay, well, what have we got for you today anyway? This is a labor and love show. And um my question for you today is, who was Lucy Parsons? Before we leave today, we'll read up on Lucy Parsons and who she was. All right, what have we got for you today? we got... We mean to make things over. One half-hour documentary. So get your coffee, your muffins, whatever it is you take with your coffee, and sit down and listen to a history of Mayday. That'll be coming. Up. Then we have uh, radio labor, of course, labor and history of two, of course. And a reflection by the actors about the recent uh, contracts that the writers have signed. Labor 411. How can you exert your power during the holidays as a consumer? Or you should shop and maybe not. Who's, who's profiting from the genocide of the Palestinian people? In an English film, just another cog in the machine, the difference joining a trade union could make. Everything you know about Thanksgiving is wrong, thanks to Francesca Ramsey and the real thanksgiving according to the business so welcome and we'll start out with we mean to make things better workers movements about how to make their lives better mean to make things better.
7: Recent history has been marked by a convergence of dire trends. COVID-19 arrived and revealed terrible inadequacies in our preparedness for pandemics. To combat the virus, shelter-in-place rules brought the economy to a standstill, with more people thrown out of work than since the Great Depression. The videotaped murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer set off nationwide protests against systemic racism unprecedented in their scale. By that summer, as the pandemic and protests continued, climate change pushed its way back into the public eye in the form of huge hurricanes in the east and enormous wildfires in the west. All of this occurred by 2020. And that was before the election to decide whether Trump would be allowed to continue to erode American democracy and push the country toward authoritarian rule. The crises haven't stopped coming. It seems we're now living through a period resembling biblical end times prophecies. But the roots of our problems aren't new. Decisions made over the past 40 years by governments, liberal and conservative alike, here in the United States and across the world, on behalf of a philosophy known as neoliberalism, brought us here. According to these ideas, the world works best when workers have no collective power, either through political parties or trade unions. When capitalists are given gigantic tax cuts and the ability to spend as much as they want politically, and government regulations providing oversight of workplaces and the environment are torn up enabling profit-making by a tiny, wealthy elite to override community needs and safety. Although neoliberalism became fashionable 40 years ago, and has been doing its work ever since, it was really just old wine in a new bottle. In a word, what caused the dire events we're living through was capitalism. This film is about the opposite of capitalism. It's about democratic socialism. Or more precisely, how the dream of a better world for the vast majority of people who live in it came to be symbolized by a holiday. Mayday. There are two origins for the holiday of May Day. One is the ancient celebration of spring, the promise of rebirth in the seasons and the renewal of the Earth. The other is the assertion of workers' rights, also promising a rebirth of sorts, of our society, on the basis of solidarity and social justice. The old May Day, still celebrated in many places, originated with a Roman pagan festival, the Floralia, celebrating Flora, the Roman goddess of flowers. It featured dancing, bacchanalia, and other sensual pleasures appropriate for a holiday about fertility and procreation. Versions of this early May Day associated with either spring or summer appeared in different cultures all over the world. As with many pagan holidays, when Europe was becoming Christianized, May Day became contested to In some places during the Middle Ages, it was incorporated into Catholic Saint's Days, By the 18th century, it became a feast day of Saint Joseph the Worker, a carpenter, surrogate father to Jesus, and the husband of Mary. In the 19th century, May Day morphed in many places into a secular holiday marking the coming of spring. Common rituals included dancing around a Maypole, crowning a May Queen, and giving May baskets to friends and neighbors. Also in the 19th century, we find the beginnings of the International Workers' Holiday, That May Day has, for more than a century and a half, been associated with a few key concepts and serves as a measure of the balance of power between workers and the capitalist class. Eventually, May Day became a workers' holiday in many countries, but not the USA. To understand why, we need to closely examine the events of 1886. But the roots of the struggle go back farther. In the early 19th century, As the United States began to industrialize, conflicts arose between workers and their employers over the length of the workday. Even more than pay rates or safety in dangerous workplaces, a desire to reduce the hours of work motivated worker discontent. Most workers were expected to be on the job for 10, 12, and sometimes more hours a day. And the work week was usually six days, not five. That's the historical reality behind the bumper sticker you might have seen that says, unions, the folks that brought you the weekend. No worker protection laws like those we have today regulated the workplace during the Gilded Age, the late 19th and early 20th century. Most labor laws were anti-worker, and unions were considered by the courts to be unlawful conspiracies against the right of bosses to do whatever they wanted. As George Bear, President of the Reading Railroad put it.
6: The rights of the laboring man will be protected and cared for, not by the labor agitator, but by the Christian men to whom God has given control of the property interests of this country.
7: For workers, things looked different. They understood every extra hour on the job as an hour they didn't spend with family, friends, pursuing self-improvement, having fun, or sleeping. They felt that the length of the workday should be a matter of negotiation, not dictatorship. To assist their efforts, they formed unions and political parties. The first unions were built by workers in the 1790s, and by the 1820s, they had founded Working Men's Parties. One of the key demands of these organizations was a shorter workday. This difference of opinion between workers and employers often resulted in strikes and sometimes spread beyond one workplace to an entire industry or even an entire city. In late May 1835, coal heavers on the Philadelphia docks went on strike for a 10-hour day. Here's how one historian described events. As they paraded down the streets of the city on June 3rd, cord wainers, carpenters, and other tradesmen followed with the shouts of, We are all day laborers! Throughout the week, leaders used labor presses, posters, and parades complete with Drum and Fife Corps demanding a 10-hour day to rally Philadelphia workers to join their brethren in the fight. By June 10th, over 40 trades and nearly 20,000 workers, including city employees, joined the strike. By the end of June, most laborers received the concessions they asked for. Thanks to events like this, by 1867, the movement for an eight-hour day had taken hold in the imagination of working people. They had a slogan, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. But things didn't just move forward. Then, as today, economic hard times would reverse the workers' movement's victories. Around this time in Chicago occurred the first large, if unsuccessful, demonstrations and strikes on May 1st for the eight-hour day. The governor of Illinois signed the first statewide eight-hour-day law in the country on March 1st, 1867, meant to take effect on May 1st. It included an unfortunate loophole. It would only apply in workplaces where there was, quote, no special contract to the contrary, unquote. This undermined the law. Although 10,000 workers paraded in support of an effective law, and in many large factories the following day, workers simply walked out after eight hours, the employers prevailed and the law was not enforced. Across the country, in California, unions presented the state legislature with tens of thousands of signatures on a petition for an eight-hour day, and workers demonstrated and struck for the goal in towns and cities across the state. In February 1868, the governor signed an eight-hour day law, just the second in the country. But after completion of the Transcontinental Railroad and the onset of a national economic depression, California workers lost the eight-hour day as desperate workers flooded in from other states, willing to work more hours for the same pay. The push for an eight-hour workday was not arbitrary. A leader of the movement, machinist Ira Stewart, said that workers were usually too modest and meek in their behavior and their desires. He said people who worked 12 or 14 hours a day, six or seven days a week, could only think of eating and sleeping. They didn't have the energy or imagination to dream of a better world, let alone demand it or act together to achieve it. Across the Atlantic, Karl Marx, a leader in the small but influential International Workingmen's Association, also known as the First International, agreed. The eight-hour day, he said, was a central goal of the workers' movement and an important step in the direction of socialism. Employers, as well as workers, knew this, so bosses did everything in their power to prevent it. By the mid-1880s, a large number of workers' organizations had passed resolutions for an eight-hour day. Some thought local unions should pressure employers to grant an eight hour day workplace by workplace. Others envisioned a legislative approach, attempting to pass laws in city and state governments with the ultimate goal a national law. Eventually, momentum built for a nationwide general strike that organizers hoped would mark the beginning of the eight hour day. The Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions set May 1, 1886, as the big day. It asked the largest worker organization, the Knights of Labor, to join in. Although the general strike idea was popular in the ranks of the Knights, its more conservative leaders were not enthusiastic. So the Federation's local councils worked to create alliances with as many groups as possible, including local Knights assemblies. For months beforehand, Unions and other worker associations spread the word through meetings, demonstrations, flyers, newsletters and other publications. The coalition effort was strong. Even before May 1st, tens of thousands of workers had been granted an 8-hour day by employers seeking to avoid a fight. A popular song was sung across the country in these meetings.
5: We mean to make-
7: On May Day, a third of a million workers left their workplaces around the country. In many cities, the strikes and demonstrations continued for days. In New York, 10,000 marched and swelled a meeting in Union Square, where the future president of the American Federation of Labor, Sam Gompers, predicted that...
6: May 1st would forever be remembered as a second declaration of independence.
7: In Louisville, black and white members of the Knights of Labor ignoring their conservative national leadership, left work and marched together in a parade of 6,000. The night's motto was, an injury to one is the concern of all. And in a time of enormous prejudice, many of its local assemblies nonetheless tried to live up to that ideal. Although parks in Louisville were off limits to African-Americans, the parade ended in National Park with an integrated demonstration. A black-owned newspaper reported, Thus have the knights of labor broken down the walls of prejudice. The city with the largest disruption to business as usual was Chicago. 80,000 strikers turned out, shutting some of the biggest factories. The majority were immigrants, Polish Catholics, Russian Jews, and Germans who were especially active on the political left. But they came from elsewhere in Europe as well. The McCormick Reaper Works, a gigantic agricultural equipment factory, had already been on strike since February. And the factory was being run by strikebreakers with the assistance of hundreds of Chicago police and armed thugs hired by the company. An eight-hour demonstration was being held May 3rd by several thousand lumbermen near the factory when the bell signaled the end of the day for the strikebreakers. As they left, the crowd confronted them. A fight broke out. Police fired into the melee, killing one striker with more dying of their wounds soon after. One of the speakers at the rally and a witness to the police killings was August Spies, a socialist journalist and a leading member of the Central Labor Council. He ran back to his office and produced a flyer in English and German calling for a demonstration the next evening at 730 in Haymarket Square to protest the police violence. Thousands of copies were distributed the next morning all over town. The hastily called meeting competed with several others in nearby neighborhoods, and a rainstorm was gathering. But around 3,000 showed up, filling just part of the large square. Chicago Mayor Carter Harrison left as the rain began to fall. He stopped in at the local police station and told Captain John Bonfield, who had gathered nearly 200 police and was planning to suppress the demonstration, that it was peaceful. Winding down due to the rain, and that he should send the police back to their precincts. Instead, Bonfield ordered his men to move in and break up the demonstration. By then, there were about an even number of demonstrators and police. As the police moved into the crowd, someone threw a bomb into their midst. One officer was killed and dozens injured. In the confusion, the police opened fire in all directions, killing demonstrators and police alike. The next day, Mayor Harrison declared martial law and soon hundreds were arrested. Some were union leaders and left-wing activists, and others were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Eventually, all but eight men were released. These eight were charged with murder. The working-class leaders, six of whom were German immigrants and several of whom were never in Haymarket Square, were chosen not due to any evidence that connected them to the bomb. Indeed, the bomber was never found. What linked the eight was their effectiveness as organizers in the city's largely immigrant working class. Normal jury selection processes were suspended, and a jury was handpicked for its hostility to unions, socialism, and anarchism. The judge ordered that all eight were to be tried together in a conspiracy trial. He forbade the defense to clarify any of the men's political beliefs, ordering them only to respond directly to specific points raised by the prosecution, while the prosecution spoke at great length about anarchism and violence. The state's attorney candidly described what this trial was about. He said,
6: Law is on trial. Anarchy is on trial. These men have been selected, picked out by the grand jury, and indicted because they are the leaders. They are no more guilty than those thousands who follow them, gentlemen of the jury, Convict these men, make examples of them, hang them, and you save our institutions, our society.
7: Seven of the eight were convicted, four were executed, and another committed suicide or was murdered in his cell. Lucy Parsons, the wife of one of the defendants, worked tirelessly to clear his name and those of the other class war prisoners. Chicago police said she was more dangerous than a thousand rioters. A few years later, Illinois Governor Peter Altgeld, over furious protests by law enforcement, pardoned the remaining three prisoners. He believed, as legal scholars do today, that the trial had been a farce. In the hysterical atmosphere of the nation's first employer orchestrated Red Scare, the momentum of the eight-hour movement was greatly slowed. Ultimately, it took more than 50 years before the eight-hour day became part of federal law, So how did May Day become an international workers' holiday? The last quarter of the 19th century saw the growth all over the world of a movement for socialism. The International Workingmen's Association of Karl Marx had been disbanded in 1876. But a new international, founded in Paris in 1889, represented millions of workers due to the rise of large mass political parties of the left, dedicated to a transition from capitalism to socialism. In one of its first official acts, in response to the travesty of justice in Chicago, the Second Socialist International proclaimed that each May 1st, workers the world over should demonstrate and act, quote, in a manner suited to the conditions in their own country, unquote, to achieve the eight-hour workday. Since that time, nearly 100 countries have established May 1st as International Workers' Day or Labor Day. The governments of those countries mostly didn't do that out of benevolence or their own free will. It took organized movements of workers that pushed the governments to proclaim May Day as a holiday. It didn't happen in the United States due to two things, the momentum that developed throughout the 1880s before the events of 1886 for a Labor Day on a different date, plus the fears among labor leaders following the Haymarket convictions of being associated with the portrayal of anarchism and socialism as violent ideologies by the conservative media and politicians on behalf of the employers. As a growing number of cities, beginning with New York in 1882, and states starting with Oregon in 1887, proclaimed Labor Day in September as a holiday, It seemed simpler and safer to go with that by the time President Grover Cleveland signed it into federal law in 1894. For worried union leaders, Labor Day didn't have the whiff of radicalism associated with May 1st. For government and business leaders, Labor Day in September was seen as an escape valve, letting the working class have its non-radical day off. But the sentiments for a May Day celebration have never gone away because there's a very powerful cluster of ideas that emerged out of this history. The movement for the eight-hour day was tied to an idea for a work holiday on May first, and also to a general strike to achieve the eight-hour day. You can think about it this way. A work holiday is, in effect, a legal general strike, which is why the pushback has often been so harsh by employers and government. If we go back to the ideas of the 19th century, Time off work can provide the space needed by workers to consider other ways of organizing not only their own time outside work, but reorganizing society itself as well. That's a compelling concept, and it accounts for the ongoing attempts to revive the tradition, as well as continuing efforts to suppress it. By the early 20th century, Sam Gompers and the AFL had abandoned May Day in favor of Labor Day. But socialists, the industrial workers of the world, communists, and waves of immigrants continued to promote the holiday. In 1919, in the midst of the Spanish flu pandemic and a Red Scare led by US Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer, 20,000 workers demonstrated in Cleveland on May 1st. Here, and in many other major cities, demonstrations and marches were met with violent repression by the authorities. This moment represented an international peak of class struggle in the wake of the Russian Revolution. Huge May Day demonstrations and general strikes rocked the capitals and lesser cities of Europe. In Winnipeg, Canada, May Day demonstrations evolved into a weeks long general strike. Let's take a brief detour to look at common elements of general strikes and some examples. Four things are usually required a generalized anger in the working class. A call by worker leadership for a general strike, an organizational structure in place that can carry it out, and a spark. In that same year of 1919, in February, 65,000 workers went out on the Seattle general strike. A hundred unions affiliated with the Central Labor Council joined a solidarity strike in support of shipyard workers who were already out. The general strike lasted a week, during which workers ran the city teaching themselves that such things could be done. But it ended with raids of IWW and socialist offices and mass arrests amid a vicious, coordinated, employer- and government-led Red Scare. In 1934, during the Great Depression, May Day drew a couple hundred thousand marchers in New York. San Francisco saw smaller demonstrations. But nine days later, maritime workers went out on a West Coast-wide strike. After two participants were killed by police, the San Francisco Labor Council called a general strike. The work stoppage brought virtually all industrial and commercial operations to a halt. After this display of determined collective power, maritime workers gained union recognition, substantial increases in wages, and control over their hiring halls. One year to the day after the San Francisco strikers were killed, Congress passed and President Roosevelt signed the National Labor Relations Act, or NLRA, establishing a national legal mechanism for peaceful workplace conflict resolution. Three years later, he signed the Fair Labor Standards Act, and eight hours finally became the workday standard.
11: Now you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. Got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build you a union, got to make it strong, but if you all stick together, boys, it won't be long. It got shorter hours. Better working conditions. Vacations with pay, take your kids to
7: the seashore. In 1946, the Oakland General Strike, part of a massive strike wave of industrial workers following World War II, was the last of six citywide general strikes that year, and the latest our country has produced a less violent and less conclusive affair than San Francisco's, touched off by women clerks on strike for union recognition in downtown department stores, the mass action nevertheless led to collective bargaining in the town's retail industry. The Oakland general strike, interestingly, did not call itself a general strike. Its leaders called it a work holiday. And it had a festive atmosphere, partly due to its occurrence during the holiday season, but also because the capitalist class chose not to contest the outcome with armed force in the streets. At various points, it has seemed that the May Day holiday might re-emerge as a realistic worker demand in America. These efforts stubbornly continue to this day, up to and including the call for general strikes in support of May Day, but also in connection with other movements of resistance with greater contemporary resonance. Recent calls for a general strike, such as the massive 2006 May Day Immigrant Rights Marches and the Occupy Oakland November 2011 Day of Action that commandeered downtown streets, shuttered banks, and closed the port, have not resulted in the classic general strike scenario of everyone leaving work, but sometimes managed to dent daily routines, make significant statements, and impact public opinion, especially when they are attached to actually existing movements with achievable goals. Whether we ultimately get to a May Day holiday, or a general strike for other purposes, will depend less on desire as on the practical readiness of large numbers of workers who understand their own collective power, and a mature organizational center to harness and channel that energy effectively. It's ironic that the events that gave birth to May Day occurred in 1886, the same year that the United States received the Statue of Liberty from France. A symbol of welcome to immigrants was dedicated just as a wave of anti-immigrant scapegoating swept the nation, set in motion by anti-labor forces to hold the line against the eight-hour day. Similar contradictions continue to the present. So which will it be? Divide and conquer, or unite and win? For the last few years, we have been seeing a significant uptick in strike action. After decades of decline in the number of walkouts, public education workers, auto, hotel and grocery workers, and others have pushed their protests against bad working conditions and inadequate pay into the streets. Frontline workers demanded safe workplaces during the COVID-19 pandemic. Hundreds of mostly small but noisy strikes at fast food restaurants, factories, delivery services, and especially in the global supply chain bubbled up in 2020. The actions were accompanied by an outpouring of affection and support for these workers as the public encountered them in hospitals, supermarkets, at the door of their homes, and in the streets, and with renewed appreciation for their essential work. Since then, a growing awareness by workers of their potential power has begun to spur further union organizing and renewed attention to May Day demonstrations. The question is how these building blocks of social change, collective action, public support for workers, and imagining a better world can be pulled together and amplified and nourished during the current crisis. That's another way of asking the same question always posed by Mayday, whether the working class can organize more effectively than the capitalist class. The history of Mayday, with its ebb and flow of connections between labor and socialism, reform struggles and revolutionary ideas, repression and resistance, tells us that winning is far from easy, but that it's possible. It depends on us.
12: This is a Radio Labour World Report, recorded on Friday, November 24th, 2023. I'm Mark Bologna. In the report this week, a special program on the UN Climate Change Conference COP28. The Labour Start report about union events and singing. Grandpa, you, you,
5: so tell me what
12: This is Radio Labour. The UN Climate Change Conference, COP28, will be held in the United Arab Emirates from November 30th to December 12th, 2023. It is in many ways a follow-up to COP21, which produced the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. The agreement was adopted by 196 countries and entered into force in November 2016. Its main goal is to limit the world's temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. To understand the importance of COP28 for trade unions, I talked to Jeremy Anderson. Mr. Anderson is the Director of Just Transition and Sustainable Transport for the International Transport Workers Federation. The ITF has about 20 million workers in 149 countries. I asked Mr. Anderson why labour unions should participate in the conference and why it is relevant
13: to workers. That's a good question, Mark, and something that I often get uh, because in many ways COP global meeting can seem a long way from workplace issues. But there are two reasons why I think it's really important that trade unions engage in the COP. And the first one is that COP is fundamentally about government making binding agreements on climate action. And many of these agreements ultimately will have impact on the workplace, whether that is about the actions around reducing emissions and the sorts of technologies that will be rolled out on workplaces or the actions that need to be taken, harmful impacts of climate change. So, for example, heat stress, uh, which has been a big topic in many workplaces that are around the world this year. And so ultimately the decisions that are made at COP flow back down to plans and policies that governments adopt at the national level and ultimately these have impacts on the workplace. Yeah, COP is not natural territory for workers influence. The global trade union movement has had some very important victories in the past. In particular I'm thinking about getting just transition to work is included in the 2015 Paris Agreement. Uh, but it's something that requires constant vigilance. Yeah, the reason we go to COP every year is that yeah we need to constantly remind government and make sure that they understand. Because the other side of this is that as much as we make sure that our workers are protected, we know that we won't have effective climate action uh, without the full engagement of the billions of workers around the world. So workers are co-designers of climate action, and this is the point that we need to continue to remind government of. Uh, but there's a second reason why it's important to go to COP, and uh, speaking of this in particular, yeah, on the perspective of transport working, which is COP is now perhaps the most important in global meeting player or the key decision makers in the global transport industry. So this is employers, but it's multinational companies or global employer federation, government ministers to go to COP or yeah, the big multilateral development bank like the World Bank. So they all go there for different reasons. The one thing that they all have in common is that COP, they want to be seen to be taking action on climate. And our job in the trade union movement is to hold them accountable make sure that everything they're doing in COP has a strong, and recognizes the importance of involving workers. The
12: conference has a number of agenda items that the labor movement has identified as important. I just want to get a sense of how you're going to react to these items. The, The first one is global stock take, which I assume means taking stock of what's happening globally. What's the agenda item of global
13: stock take about? The global stock take is related to the 2015 Paris Agreement, when all countries said, we agreed to limit global temperature rises to 1.5 degrees, because that has been the key tipping point uh, before we go into irreversible damage to the climate. And, but what countries agreed to do in Paris is that they would individually come up with their own plan for how they would contribute to reducing greenhouse emissions and stopping the world going over this 1.5 barrier. So every country submits their own uh, national climate plan to the COP and has its own three-letter acronym uh, at COP. It's called a Nationally Determined Contribution, or NDC. And what the global stocktake is doing is collecting it? so all those NDCs It's over 200 and seeing what they add up to. Now, it's no great mystery that even before they started this process nearly two years ago, that the current batch of NDCs or National Climate Plans are nowhere near enough, nowhere ambitious enough to deal with the climate challenge. But what's happening with the global stocktake is that there will be an agreed conclusion about what countries need to do next. And so as the trade unions, we have been... And pay me around this for the last 18 months, because there's a couple of things we think is really important. The first thing is we want strong language on a just transition for workers, And this would mean, that we get this, that every union in the world can say to their government, you need to put something around the role of workers in your national climate plan. And the second thing we want is making sure that we come up with particular Plan for each industry. So for ourselves in the ITF, we want the see particular commitments around the transport industry that should apply to all industries, manufacturing, building, healthcare, and so on. So those are the two key things we want out of the global stock market, the key decision that's going to be made.
12: Another item that the labor movement wants to talk about is the new collective quantified goal. Let me repeat that. The New Collective Quantified Goal. What does that mean?
13: Otherwise known as the NCQD. which says that this is the new agreement on global climate finance. And what is expected at the COP and the UN Convention on Climate Change is that the countries with historic responsibility uh, for creating all the emissions, they've got a Uh, into the mess that we're in today versus countries like the US, uh, Europe, uh, Australia, and New Zealand. They have the responsibility to finance countries like Pakistan or Uganda or the Cook Islands that have not made any significant contribution to uh, to global warming historically.
12: You can hear the full 20-minute interview with Mr. Anderson on the Radio Labour website. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder.
2: This week, our top stories section included links to coverage of the ongoing push by unions around the world to have ILO Convention 190, which addresses workplace harassment and violence, ratified. Other top stories this week include the decision by Irish public sector unions to bargain a short-term agreement that focuses on wages as a way of addressing the cost-of-living crisis, how the abuse of migrant workers in the United Arab Emirates is linked to climate harm, and the build-up to today's Black Friday walkouts across Europe as Amazon workers take on the world's biggest retailer. A random sample from our news pages includes articles about the reaction of Argentinian unions to the election of a far-right president there, Young Workers Organizing Efforts in Indonesia and how the United States Auto Workers Union plans on turning their bargaining gains into organizing wins for currently non-union workers. On our Working Women news page, you'll find stories about the struggles of Scottish women firefighters who are demanding proper changing rooms and toilet facilities at work, how professional footballers are organizing for gender equality in all sports, and many stories about the lives of Bangladeshi garment workers and why they are risking their lives in the fight for a living wage. And from Ireland, we carried a story about a massage parlor worker who won a large compensation package after her employer demanded sexual services from her. Stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week include the apparently never-ending struggle for safe schools in South Africa, a challenge you'll see highlighted in many countries around the world, a memorial in London for the 53 media workers killed in Gaza to date, and a review of the Qatar World Cup and its impact on migrant workers' rights there and in future global sports championships. Our current photo of the week comes to us from Uruguay, where metal workers recently celebrated the reduction of their work week from 48 to 46 hours. Reducing the work week is a priority for unions in Uruguay and is seen as a work-life balance issue as well as a way to reduce unemployment. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor.
12: Now here is Australia's Victorian Trade Union Choir with You Knew Grandpa, You Knew.
5: You knew our world would be in trouble As your emissions grew and grew You said it's only froth and bubble But did you really have a clue? You knew Grandpa, you knew Grandpa So tell me what did you tell me what you do? You knew Grandma, you Song from 2013, we hope it's getting through to you. Why did your pal stay so dirty? How come you didn't just renew? You left your museum to above us while you just flew and flew and flew and flew. You chose. Big hey, brood! That we can put the blame on you You knew Grandpa, you knew Grandpa So tell Tell me what did you do You You knew knew. Grandma, you knew Grandpa So tell Tell me what did you you do You You knew clean coal was not the the future Clean gas and oxymoron too had a lovely life to suit you and never wanted to say whoa! You knew you really couldn't hack it to make the change when it was due and now it's gonna cost a packet to fix what you neglected to. You knew Grandpa, you knew Grandpa, so tell me what Did you tell me what you do? You knew grandma, you knew grandpa. So tell Tell me what did you you do?
12: And that's it. Labor News You Can Use. You can listen to our newscasts and features at radiolabor.net.
11: The site also features
12: English as an additional...
11: Okay, so a lot of words, a lot of uh, literature today, huh? Two two videos. The first was about um, May Day, but I played it because it's kind of a reiteration of how worker power has been applied here in California over the years. Kind of history, also a history of that. Um, And then we went right into Radio Labor about labor campaigns all over the world. Listen to their website and write some letters around the world and, and support People who are thrown in jail for unionizing and doing other anti-establishment things. What about Thanksgiving, right? I've got Francesca Ramsey's ideas here about Thanksgiving. Let's hear what she says. (laughs) (laughs)
1: And I'm thankful
14: for my kindergarten class who made these wonderful crafts to celebrate
9: Thanksgiving.
6: (laughs) After the Native Americans helped the pilgrims survive their first winter in America, the Puritans invited them to share the first Thanksgiving.
8: Oh, these are adorably strong. A five-year-old made that, based off of the lies that you taught them. Excuse me? Oh, it's not your fault. These are full of half-truths and historical propaganda. I thought the Native Americans and the Pilgrims were, like, besties or whatever. At best, the Pilgrims and Wampanoags could be described as political allies. By the time the Pilgrims showed up, not only were two-thirds of the Massachusetts tribes completely wiped out by European slave owners and diseases, the Pilgrims were constantly at war with the indigenous people and routinely tortured them.
6: But what about Squanto, the Native American who learned English to help out the pilgrims?
8: He was actually a slave that was hauled off to Europe and then he learned English so that he could escape.
6: But they did celebrate it every year, right?
8: Not exactly. The next one was 16 years later. Unfortunately, it was because the Puritans were celebrating the massacre of the Pequot tribe. Back then, Thanksgiving was also for families, specifically murdering them. Okay, we get it. History's awful, the Puritans were terrible, and now we have to let our children know that the holidays started with tons of killings. Happy? Well, we actually have just about everything wrong with the Thanksgiving myth. Definitely didn't wear these buckle hats. Didn't land on Plymouth Rock, and as for that turkey... no, oh, no, not turkey. ...more like venison, fowl, and eel. Oh! Who cares about how this stupid holiday got started anyway? Exactly! In George Washington's 1789 Thanksgiving proclamation, the settlers aren't mentioned not even once. Thanksgiving wasn't celebrated nationwide until 1863 when this guy declared it a national holiday during the Civil War in order to bring the country together. That's why all of our foods are from the 19th century. So Lincoln came up with the whole Indian pilgrim story? Nope. That myth didn't catch on until the 1900s after we had fought and killed all the Native Americans. And then we put it in textbooks as fact. Because America. What? The food is really good and if you ignore all the terrible history like you know the murdering, the raping, the pillaging, it's still kind of a great holiday. Mm.
6: So the mayflower is a lie. Why do we eat cranberry sauce? What
8: about stuffing? Is Black Friday really just a capitalist conspiracy to get poor people to buy things so we can't truly live out a populist revolt? is it? Really America. It's amazing America. And what about poor? I am I been never been telling you the truth ever again. <laughs>
14: I love the idea of Thanksgiving. I love the idea of a day of gratitude and spending time with your family, and I actually love the weird food. What I don't like is uh, the underlying tragedy and genocide that we ignore on that day. Why do we put our children in costumes of people that showed up and robbed graves and did terrible things and brought disease? and? and and just took things, you know, took land from people who were already here. To set up children from the age of preschool to believe that it's right and okay to just take everything is actually truly horrible. It's teaching appropriation from the very beginning. So no wonder, you know, when they get to high school they think it's fine to wear these headdresses, to wear, you know, things they should not be wearing, and to have these sports names. We start them at the age of two with these innocent, sweet Thanksgiving songs But we create the appropriators of tomorrow. (laughs) I thought I knew a lot as an indigenous person about Thanksgiving, and the reality is, like nothing we've been told is true in just one fact, you know, like certain things did happen, but all of these things didn't happen in the way we've ever been told. It's like all the best like, fake news, right? They took things that happened. You know, like certainly lots of separatists, which we now call pilgrims, and different Native folks have had meals. <laughs> but, you know, there's so many different um, times that that possibly happened that we're referencing. There were so many political reasons that Thanksgiving, the mythology of Thanksgiving, kept morphing over the centuries to fulfill political agendas, right? Just like today. I think the hardest thing for Americans today, and the reason that Native Americans and Native American history and issues get left out so often, is because it hasn't ended. We can point to different things and say we fixed that. Um, We are all still complicit in standing on stolen land. It isn't done. We've actually been told, like my people for instance have been told by the Supreme Court, yes you're right, the government did violate their treaties and this still is your land, yet they just won't give it back. The first step is just to know whose land you're on. You need to know which lands, whose nation you're standing on. Figure out who the indigenous people are in your land and then start to get to know about them. Start to figure out how you can make reparations. People get really scared when you talk about reparations but I think there's so many ways that you with your current resources can reach out and say, what can I do to be of service? How can I help? Is there anything I have within my means that would be helpful to your people? And maybe it's just education. Maybe it's getting your kids, teachers, to stop doing these terrible, racist, horrible Thanksgiving pageants they do. You know, I don't know what it is, but everybody has a capacity to give back something. And you need to start with knowing who you need to give it back to. And if everyone just did that on Thanksgiving, we would be eons ahead in this country than we've ever been in the history since, you know, Columbus showed up.
11: I want to play one more about Thanksgiving here from the Business Insider, which is you didn't know is really well managed sort of weapon for the left. This is economists who are right up to date with what's happening in the economy, that big imaginary thing that runs all our lives. This one is about turkeys. Well, looks like I'm not like getting the turkeys. It's in Business Insider, and Business Insider also has a very informative article about Thanksgiving, the true story of Thanksgiving. As the story goes, friendly Native Americans taught the struggling colonists how to survive in what the Europeans called the New World. Then everyone got together to celebrate with a feast in 1621. Thanksgiving 2022 marks the 40th anniversary of the first American Thanksgiving. The Thanksgiving feast predate Plymouth and the peace celebrated that day was tenuous. It's so dark, the real story behind the reality or the proposed reality. Some people are thinking rethinking how they celebrate the holiday or whether they should celebrate it at all. The Washingtonian reported that the meal was probably little more than some oysters and hams thrown together. Decades before that, Spanish settlers and members of the Saloy tribe broke bread in Florida with salted pork, garbanzo beans, and a mass in 1620, 1565. Uh, the things that, things about this, I mean, Thanksgiving is the promise Part of the promise that God has blessed this American project, that that these colonists were bound to succeed. They brought, quote unquote, Christianity to our shores. But what they really brought was ultimately capitalism. And Thanksgiving is trying to get God involved get God on our side as blessed and um, special different from you know other civilizations and and ultimately nations so Thanksgiving is trying to tell us that God is in favor of this and if God is in favor of it then we can go ahead and do whatever we want which, Pilgrims did. There evidently was some kind of gathering, but the peace between them didn't last long. By 1675, the pilgrims had declared war on local natives and pretty much wiped them out with the help of the diseases that Europeans had brought. In 1637, since the Massachusetts Bay Governor John Winthrop declared a holiday to celebrate colonial soldiers who had just slaughtered hundreds of Pequot men, women, and children in what is now Mystic, Connecticut. Wasaswat the Mampoag, paramount chief allied with the English settlers after Plymouth was established and fought with the newcomers against the French and other local tribes. But the alliance strained over time. The disease, which people aren't quite sure what it was, it was called Indian fever had so affected the population, beside all the killing and the massacres, indigen indigenous population was down to ninety percent of what it down by ninety percent. Only ten percent of it remained. The Indian fever was an unknown disease brought by English European settlers. By the time Massaswat's son, Metacomet, who had known to the English as King Philip, inherited leadership, relations had frayed. His men were executed for the murder of the Boag interpreter and Christian convert John Sassaman, sparking King Philip's war. Wampanoag's warriors responded with raids. Ah, we love our war. All right, let's take a listen. Let's take a listen now to some nice Sunday jazz, and we'll be right back with the rest of our show. Okay, like I tell you, today's been a day of uh,
6: videos.
11: I should have said today would be video day. Because here's another one. This one is called Just Another Cog in the Machine. The difference joining and trade union. I'll read this one, just another cog in the machine and no longer, hardly a week passes thinking about leaving this place, we will have to be daft to go, I just wish more people could talk to us honestly, and this isn't going to work out. Hardly any major project gets planned out properly because big organizations change how we come to Real pride is virtually non-existent, and turnovers is at an all It Could be much better than it is. Okay, get ourselves organized so here we go this part i'll be able to read to you it says union on the door the barriers were too high for us we can change anything and i don't feel that i'm always on my own once he's joined the union when problems arise things are just different it's an organization to work for. I don't think that. Could be much better than it is right now. Morale is at an all-time high, and turnover among our staff is virtually non-existent. Real pride in what we do has become commonplace because big stuff gets planned out properly. Hardly any major long-term business strategy is pretty much the norm. Putting in too many hours won't get you a promotion here, but good work and professionalism are awarded more than fairly by our managers and directors who talk to us honestly. I wish more could work for an employer like mine. Never think about leaving this place, learning new skills every week. I no longer believe I'm just another cog in the machine, thanks to Okay, all right, so let's talk a little about contemporary things. Uh, War in Gaza, hardly a war, not a war. Slaughter in Gaza. This is something, you know, I've just thought about. Now, all of us, just like that song that that, uh, I played right at the end of uh, Radio Labor, you knew, Grandpa, you knew. And tell me, what did you do? Just like now, see, there was a slaughter of people in Nazi Germany. The Germans wanted to have good public relations. So they said that those stories about the way Jews were treated were fanciful and they weren't real. And there might have been one or two incidents like that now and then. But Israel has not allowed us our ignorance. All of us know, all of us know what's going on, and all of us have to take on a little bit of the guilt for what's going on in Gaza. Whatever you want to do with that guilt, I mean, that's your prerogative. But this has touched all of us. When something like this happens, it's not just a nation against a, a culture is now it's just uh shooting fish in the barrel to use a phrase okay well let's let's get on here randresher actors troubled by sag's a i deal with hollywood Okay, what do we got here? Let me get rid of this. As an alternative member of the Screen Actors Guild nominating committee, Sean Sharma spent most of his last year strategizing with other assembly members and going back to the deal with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers over deal points that are important to actors and their futures in the entertainment business. As the issue of artificial intelligence is top of mind for performers who have concerns about how the digital technology will shape Hollywood and impact their career trajectories. Well, okay, so this is this is the way automation comes to the entertainment industry. The threat is that. This AI can do the job better than you, or it can't do it better than you. It can do it good enough so it can replace you. All right, so let's see. SAG AFTRA leadership and negotiating committee members voted unanimously to approve of tentative agreement with Hollywood Studios November 8th. Okay, so they're upset because they feel like, even though this is the biggest contract-on-contract gain in the history of the union, they haven't dealt with the issue of AI yet. If you want to get hired, you have to be ready to consent to be replicated, he says. And this is true. The AI can read your and recreate a lot of who you are. It's only those with considerable leverage that'll have the ability to say no to replication, but still be hired. That really me- concerns me because most members don't have the leverage to say no at the time of engagement. And it talks about other loopholes here. So check it out. It's on the Rolling Stone, one of the best stories that I've seen about the striking. OK, now, the thing that we need to understand always is that, war is a business, and for some people it's very good business indeed, especially arms manufacturers. You're uh, in an arm working. If you're a manager, let's say, or a CEO of arms dealer. Not going to be not going to feel the same about the peace movement as you would if you didn't have that job. Anyway, there are a lot of of companies that profit from this genocide that's ongoing, this apartheid regime. Puma Carrefour, Siemens, Hewlett-Packard, Remax, SodaStream. These are boycott targets. So if you hear that name, you shouldn't go into this store. You shouldn't get online with them and do business. Pressure targets, non-boycott. We've got uh, Google. And we've got Amazon. Airbuds, Booking.com, Expedia, and Disney. These are pressure, non boycott. Maybe you talk to your friends about this and say, oh, you know they're on this list. And the choice is up to them if they want to boycott or not. Chevron appears prominently on the list of divestment targets. Barclays Bank. Hyundai, Volvo, oh, too bad. I was like... And uh, organic boycott targets are Domino's Pizza, McDonald's, Pizza Hut, Papa John's, Burger King, and Wix. the usual suspects, pretty much. Okay, let's... Listen up now to some labor history, courtesy of uh, Rick Smith. Birth of the Time Clock.
15: Let's hear this one. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1888. That was the day that William Legrand Bundy is credited with inventing something that has become a daily part of life for millions of workers. His time recorder was a time clock that could record when workers arrived and left their jobs each day. The clock would record the time on a paper tape when a worker inserted his or her individualized numbered key. Bundy was a jeweler and an inventor from New York. After inventing his time clock, he went into business with his brother Harlow and founded the Bundy Manufacturing Company. With the growth of factories, there was more and more demand for time clocks. They were considered more exact and efficient than human timekeeping. Keeping track of hours worked and labor costs became an essential part of squeezing every drop of profit out of the industrial workforce. The Bundy brothers located their company in the city of Binghamton in Southern New York. Business thrived. Other inventors put their own twist on the time clock. At the turn of the 20th century, the Bundy company merged with several other timekeeping outfits forming the International Time Recorder Company. Workers across the United States, Canada, and Europe had their work hours recorded by international time clocks. Later, the company became part of International Business Machines, or IBM, one of the worldwide leaders in workplace technology. Over the years, new innovations have been introduced to employee timekeeping such as time cards and computer-linked swipe cards.
1: Labor History in Two,
15: brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1945. That was the day that 320,000 United Auto Workers went out on strike against General Motors. The strike was part of a wave of work actions that washed over the country after World War II. Workers were growing more and more frustrated that company profits were soaring while workers' wages remained stagnant. During the war, most unions had abided by no-strike pledges. But once the war was over, workers wanted their fair share of the growing American economy. In just one year, 5 million workers participated in more than 4,500 strikes. The GM strikers demanded a 30% pay increase. Walter Ruther, president of the UAW, also insisted that the company could meet this demand without raising the prices of their vehicles. He asked the company to open their books so workers and the public could see the full details of the company's profits. GM refused. They characterized Ruther as a socialist for even making such an outrageous request. During negotiations, Harry Cohen, the GM assistant director of personnel, told President Ruther, quote, why don't you get down to your size and get down to the type of job you're supposed to be doing as a trade union leader and talk about money you would like to have for your people and let the labor statesmanship go to hell for a while. The GM strike lasted 113 days. The workers won a 17.5% pay increase and improvements to vacation and overtime. But they did not get to look at GM's books or gain any say on how GM vehicles were priced. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to com. 2com like- I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1909. That was the evening when a crowd began to gather at the Cooper Union in the heart of New York City's shirtwaist garment making industry. A meeting had been called by the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, Local 25, to discuss whether garment workers should go out in a general strike. Working conditions and pay throughout the industry were abysmal. It was common for workers to toil 11 hours a day with only a 30-minute lunch break seven days a week. But organizing all these workers was a challenge. Many spoke various dialects of Yiddish or Italian, so organizing had to take place in multiple languages. But slowly, the organizing efforts began to build and show results. Pickets and walkouts were held against some employers. The union called a meeting to discuss what to do next. They voted to strike after a stirring speech in Yiddish from Clara Lemlich, a founder of the ILGWU Local 25. The strike came to be known as the Uprising of 20,000. It lasted until February. In a settlement, more than 300 factories agreed to recognize the union. A song from the Educational Department of the ILGWU captured the spirit of the strike. The lyrics began, in the black winter night of 1909, we froze and bled on the picket line. We showed the world that women could fight, and we rose and won with women's might. The song continued, and we gave new courage to the men who carried on in 1910. And shoulder to shoulder, we'll win through, led by the ILGWU. Labor History in 2, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to labor history. Well, it's about time for us to uh,
11: start packing up and turning you over to Scott Walker. How do you do, Scott? Um, I asked you at the beginning of the show to listen carefully so you could find out who Lucy Parsons was. So if I ask you now, who was Lucy Parsons? Did you notice when we talked a little bit about her? Well, here's what her labor card says. Lucy Parsons, part Native American, part African American and Mexican, left Texas in 1871 and went to Chicago where she joined the fight for the eight-hour day. After the famous demonstration in Haymarket Square in 1886, her husband, Albert Parsons, was arrested and executed. Lucy became leader of the movement for collective bargaining, the 40-hour week, and equal pay for women. The strike of the future, she said, is to remain in and take possession of the necessary property of production. What later was called a sit-in, the Chicago Police Department said that Parsons was more dangerous than a thousand rioters. So oh, yeah. That was Lucy Parsons. This is the B reminding you that when one person gets a dollar they didn't work for. It. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, where you work. You're on the menu. And never, never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend. of It's only a waste of time. Okay. So have a good week and good work. I already read about. Willie Dixon. Willie Dixon wrote this song. Uh, it's kind of a natural thing for him. Uh, he was a he was a um, conscientious objector, along with I believe Quincy Jones. I'm not sure about that. These people were. It don't make sense. You can't make peace.
10: My question.
11: Well, Willie's not coming up. Let's play something else. Change is going to come.
1: There's
11: a romantic one.
9: Does my ponytail look cool? Thank you. Namaste.
6: Tuesday used to be
9: the most unlikely night for fun.
6: But every week at 6 p.m., come to OMG's Tuesday Open Mic.
5: And see comics work out new material for
6: free. For free. they Get your Tuesday night party on with two-for-one well drink specials during the 6 to 8 p.m. show.
9: But I'm not swinging through the senior facility, Best of Mysterio at Boggle, or getting beautifully plowed by the Rhino, I'm headed down to Beauty Radio at the corner of Twenty First and Florida. They got some Shmiles doing the laugh laugh. But hey, don't be a schmuck and donate two to five dollars. On hold, hold on. What is this? Let me get my glasses. The print's too small. Ben right. Mo? That's not real. What is that Swedish? You knew that, right? This is in San Francisco. I'll drown in on. It's nap time.
0: Weekly comedy at the best neighborhood bar in the city.
9: Comedy is the cheapest. Happy hour, the most free two hours of hour long comedy on the radio and internet streaming live at 21st Street. Come down, be in the audience. Dog friendly. Dog fr- We are. Mutiny Radio is absolutely dog friendly. Ooh, a dog party. Ain't no party like a dog party. Dog party at Mutiny Radio.
0: Every Friday, dog party <laughs> at Mutiny Radio. Mutiny happy seven Hour.
9: 278 <laughs> Street. Happy Hour. Mutiny Radio.fm. Here in dot SF.
4: Calling all crusty's punks and poses. Pick your posteriors up off the pavement. Pack up your pins and patches, and prepare to party. The Pacific Northwest Vestfest returns this Saturday only at the SeaTac Expo Center
9: even in a drizzle, but not too much. Hey Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come?
0: I really don't. Anywho.
9: You take it with the Frasers.
0: Reservations on Eventbrite. L S D Fap. Acid
9: and
8: Fapping, Fapping and Acid, Acid Fapping, Fapping and Acid, Fap, Fap, Fap Fap, Fap, Fap Fap, Fap.
7: Acid! Thank you, that song is called Acid and Fapping
5: or download a podcast, and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco.
0: I was just leaving the theater.
2: Convertible. 1969 gold Cadillac with the white interior. I drove it up here. And I started to
0: do some thinking.
5: ...around dinner on the freeway,
2: and I'm having a really, really good time. Flat, black, like glassy. Smoking big splits and cruising with Cadillac on I am I'm a total friendly and see fraud, and voice is
1: absolutely right. I am
5: Teddy Bay
0: as an adolescent. And
3: I will cut the room. Hello, Henry! Shit. Henry. Yeah. Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. And She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man.
4: Captain Curls, up in the head. Mutiny Radio Festival, ahoy. Ah, very good. Ah, very good, Legless Joe. I'm a surprise.
5: You can listen oh. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go.